0: week as part of the 70 day Bible reading challenge. Hands up if you're still sticking with the 70 day Bible reading challenge. Yeah, that's awesome. It's tough, but it's so worthwhile. And uh, over this past week, we've been reading uh, 1 Corinthians 7 through 16 and Luke chapters 14 through 18. And plus over this past week, we've started Lent. Hands up if you're giving up something for Lent. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah, good, good. Any social media giver, givers up us? That seems to be quite a popular thing. Jeff, that is a real sacrifice. Well, you... Uh, no, I, I know. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I I think if you would be watching educational YouTube videos, that would be the thing that would uh, cause you pain and suffering. Um. So, uh, but... Oh, What I'm trying to say is that we have all these great habits that uh, we are establishing in our lives, whether it's reading the Bible or fasting and praying. And, And what I hope is that as we're doing this is that many of us are kind of posturing ourselves ready for God to speak into our lives in a powerful way right that it's it's not just religion it's not just a thing to do but that we are there ready with the bible open feeling some kind of hunger because of the fasting or whatever that looks like and we're saying god would you speak to me now now of course in the midst of that it's important that we that we keep loving Jesus, and that we never allow ourselves to slip over into that religiosity, trying to earn God's favor through the things we do, because that's not what either of these things are about, and it's impossible, right? So, you know, we really need to keep it simple, which is knowing Jesus and knowing the love that he has for us, growing in that love, and then showing it to a world that needs Jesus's love. Now, let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Um, where we will have uh, our, our scripture reading. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, it's not often when I'm reading Jesus' words in the Bible that I think those first few words that you just said were enough, Lord. You could have actually stopped there. You didn't need to carry on and tell the story. And that's how I feel about Luke 18, verse 1. Now, Luke 18, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is about to tell us a parable, but it also tells us the why, and the why is the reason... uh, leading into the parable, and it's the why, it's the reason that, en- that enchants me, that grabs hold of me. Now, of course, nothing that Jesus says is superfluous or wasted or unnecessary. Uh, you know, we live by eating every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So this parable uh, from verse 2 onwards is necessary, but when I read Luke 18 verse 1, uh, I just want to stop Jesus from talking. Because these few words in Luke 18 verse 1 stop me in my tracks. It's like Jesus has placed his hand on my chest and he's saying to me, hold on a second, mate. You need to know why I'm about to say what I'm about to say. And it's not often that the writers of the Gospels go out of their way to explain, heading into a parable, why they're writing, why why this parable was told in the first place. They don't often really do that, but Luke does here. And I know why Luke wants to explain why Jesus will be telling this story. And I think it's because God knows me. And I think that God needs me to know why I should always pray and not give up. And I know why Jesus wants to show me why I should always pray and not give up. And the reason is because I don't always pray. And when I do pray, too often I quit. I stop, I falter in my tracks. I stumble, I fall, I sit down, and I forget why I was praying in the first place. I get distracted Or I start praying and I find it too hard or too boring and so I stop. But James 6 verse 16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And James even explains that prayer is why we should confess our sins to each other. He says that we should confess our sins to each other so that we can have a life of prayer that shakes heaven and changes the course of history. You know, how many times have you heard anyone say to you, through God's power, I'm overcoming sin in my life with the express purpose of being able to pray? Hands up if you've ever heard anyone say that. Hands up if you've ever said it. I've not. And yet that's what we read in James 6. So do we have this lofty view of prayer that it's worth getting serious about sin in our lives so that we're able to pray? And then Jesus in Luke 18 verse 1 starts to weave a story to show us that we, you and I, frail human beings who quit and who don't even start many times, that we should always pray and not give up because prayer is effective. Now, as you read the story, you'll see that it's not so much a story as a bit of a joke. Because as Jesus tells the story, I believe he has a a wry smile on his face. He knows it's an absurd story. You know, he knows it's a full-on Monty Python moment. You see, what has just happened in Luke seventeen is that Jesus has given them a really sobering insight into what the end's gonna look like when he returns. And and, and he, he speaks about it as if it is going to happen, and maybe, who knows, but I think that maybe after hearing that, the disciples are thinking, Well, if everything's a foregone conclusion, Jesus speaks so authoritatively and finally about what's gonna happen at the end. So if everything's a foregone conclusion, what's the point in praying? And, and, and so Jesus, who's, who's a mind reader, he knows that something is going on in their lives, in their minds, and in their hearts. There's something really deep inside them. And whatever this thing is, it's the opposite of praying and not giving up. And this triggers Jesus to tell them this kind of pantomime story about praying and not giving up. And so I see Jesus, you know, grabbing their attention. He sees this look on their face and he says, okay, folks, listen up. Peter, stop talking. You're going to want to listen to this. And then the disciples stop and they give him their full attention. And then I see this twinkle in Jesus' eye and a smile on his face as he starts to kind of um, ham up this story that he's about to say. Luke 18, verse 2. So here's Jesus, larger than life, owning all of the space and he says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And of course, if this was a pantomime, everyone, everyone, when they hear that judge, you know, they're saying, boo, hiss. A judge who answers to no one but himself, who doesn't care about God or people, boo, he has no moral law. We don't like him. And, verse 3, there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea. There's this frail, you know, I see Jesus with his hand on his back. And he's like, grant me justice against my adversary. And then the question is, what will the judge do? Will he answer her plea, this poor, poor, frail, helpless woman? Verse 4, for some time he refused. The tension is mounting. Boo! But finally, Jesus says, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this woman keeps what? Keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And I see, that you know, Jesus' closest friends laughing at his, Awful acting, because I don't believe that just because you're the son of God means you're an amazing actor. And so this, this, this whole scene is like Jesus creating a Simpsons episode with larger-than-life stereotypes. It's the big villain, and it's the weak, helpless victim. And the reason Jesus does this is to show us exactly and specifically what God is not like He's painting an absurd image to contrast against the true picture of God. God is the opposite of an angry and frustrated unjust judge being harangued by a mosquito widow. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm 116 verse 1 friends god hears us he's listening out for us he knows the tone and the cadence of our voices just like a shepherd knows his sheep i am the good shepherd i know my sheep and my sheep know me john chapter 10 verse 14 now what's happening in luke 18 it's not just a funny play but it's also a, a strate- it's also a a rhetorical tool Okay, what Jesus is doing is he's arguing from the lesser up to the greater. In Latin, okay, there's this Latin word for it or phrase for it, and it's called an argumentum a fortiori. Argumentum a fortiori, which means an argument to the greater. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if this is true, then how much more is this true? If the horrible judge hears her plea and acts on it, then for sure God is going to hear your prayers. It's like me looking at a cardboard box on the floor. It's sealed. I have no idea how much it weighs. I can guess, but there's no way for me to know for sure just by looking at it. But then Maya comes along, and she rocks it back a couple of times, and she lifts it up like it's nothing. And as soon as I see Maya lift it, I know that I can lift it. It's like, a, you know, it's, 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 it's like a kid when they're trying to figure out how big is God, right? Mum, is God larger than me? Yes, he is, dear. Is God larger than the tallest man in the world? Yes, he is, dear. Is God larger than, you know, you know and you can see her mind working it through. Is God larger than the Great Wall of China? Yes, he is. Is God larger than you? And the mum responds with a laugh, right? Because if God is larger than the Great Wall of China, then for sure he's larger than me. This is an argumentum a fortiori, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so what Jesus is saying is that if an unjust judge is going to bring justice to this widow, then you can be sure that God is going to bring justice for you. Verse 6 of Luke 18. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Verse 7, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Last week, I don't know if you remember, but I said that a major theme of Luke was that in Jesus, the outsider can become an insider, right? And Luke was an outsider, and his heart is for the outsiders. And so much of what you read in the book of Luke can be read through this lens. And maybe you feel like an outsider, like you don't fit, like you're not welcome. And if this is you, then this may be how you pray. Or this may be how you think. Well, well, there's no use in praying. It doesn't really do anything. And God's not interested in what I have to say. He doesn't really care. He loves all these other people who are on the inside, but not me who's on the outside. I've sinned way too much. And I'm not worthy. And I'm not special. And even if I did pray well, God's not going to answer my prayer anyways. And so you live a life of prayerless silence of nothing going on in your head except your own thoughts bouncing off the walls of your cranium. And Jesus knows this. And this is why Jesus tells us to pray and not give up. Friends, God sees everything and he knows everything and he will make things right. He will bring justice. He will restore. He will make everything new. So pray and don't give up. Now, Luke 11, verse 5, feel free to turn there if you want, but Luke 11, verse 5 recounts a similar story to the widow and the judge, only this time Jesus is talking about going to your neighbor late at night and asking for some bread because some out-of-town friends have just turned up on your doorstep. And, you you know, it even says in the account that it's midnight and your neighbor understandably is not too happy and so he tells you to get lost. But then verse 8 of chapter 11 says this, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. The reason that your neighbor finally and grudgingly thrusts this bread into your hands is because of one thing alone. Because of your shameless audacity. Because of your impudence, because of your sheer persistence, because of your cheekiness, because you stood your ground and you did not waver or move. And then Luke carries on in verse 9 of, of Luke 11. So I say to you, so connected with that, so I say to you, in light of what I've just said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened to, will, will be opened. Now, Eugene Peterson, in the message, translates verse 10 like this. He says, don't bargain with God. He says, be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. Stop playing around. Just speak frankly with your heavenly Father that loves you. Because verse 11 of Luke 11, still in the message, says this. If your little boy asks for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You are at least decent to your own children. And don't you think that the father who conceived you in love will give the Holy Spirit when you ask him? You know, Do you see what Jesus is doing here again? He's using an absurd picture that borders on child abuse to show us what God is not like. Friends, God wants us to pray and not give up because praying is the lifeline of communication that we have with him. Prayer is what brings us life and hope. Prayer is the means that God uses to mold this world in partnership with us. This means that we get a say in how things turn out. This means that we can pray into existence things that weren't there up until that moment we can pray transformation into circumstances and lives and homes and cities and nations we read this Elijah was a human being even as we are he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years again he prayed and heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops James chapter 5 verse 16 now, what might jump out to you is, the, is that he prayed and God answered it and, you know, in an amazing way. But what stands out to me is that Elijah was a human being exactly as we are. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to think that we just have to wear God down with our prayers. And that, and that if we do that, he'll do whatever we say. Now, of course, that's not true. Because that's not how any relationship works. This is not a transaction where you put coins in a vending machine and then a chocolate bar falls out. And if the chocolate bar doesn't fall out, then you shake that machine and threaten it with violence until it gives you the chocolate bar. Right? That's not how this works. And there's something beautiful and mysterious at work here that transcends a simple request and response mechanism. And I think it's no accident that straight after the parable of the widow, we have the parable of the tax collector. Luke 18 verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Do you know anyone like that? Jesus told this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like this widow in the first story, this tax collector is super desperate. He knows that he's on skid row, that he has no hope except to turn to the mercy of Almighty God. And I think that Jesus has these parables next to each other because, because the tax collector fills in the gaps in the widow parable. You know, the widow tells us that we're to pray and not give up. And the tax collector tells us that we absolutely need an attitude of humility. The widow tells us to keep on praying, to keep on asking. And the tax collector tells us to pray short, heartfelt, sincere, honest prayers. He tells us that God is not fooled by our fancy words or our religious language. The Lord does not look at the things people look look at people look at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart first Samuel 16 and so this life of faith is a combination of perseverance and simplicity of confidence and humility and I think that we as human beings tend to fall off the balance beam either one way or the other some of us we just don't pray we're so humble that we think that God's not interested in our prayers. That's not humility. And then there are others who think that we just need to keep on beating on God's door until he gives us exactly what we want. But both silence and verbal diarrhea both come from a place where faith is absent. Let me say that again. Silence and verbal diarrhea both come from a place where faith is absent. Some of us don't ask because we don't believe God answers prayer. And some of us over ask because we think that God didn't hear us the first time. And so if the parables of the widow and the tax collector are there to encourage us to pray with confidence and humility, then in the following passage, Jesus kind of builds his case into, you know, like a symphonic crescendo. The widow and the tax collector show us that prayer comes from a place of relationship, of trust, of faith, and of love. And then verse 17 of chapter 18 crystallizes all of this into the image of a little child. The trust of a child with their good, good father. A child who is utterly dependent, who is not self-assured, who knows that they need the care and the concern of their dad. And they are convinced that they will get it. This is the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. And this is the eyeball to eyeball of intimacy that he's inviting us into. Verse 17, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, in all of these passages, Jesus isn't giving us a surefire technique or a prayer equation. Instead, he's kind of painting a landscape. He's using words to capture a preferred reality, uh, this nuance of relationship. We have the perseverance of the widow and we have the humility of the tax collector, and we have the simple trust of the child. And somewhere in the middle of these qualities or characteristics, we find faith, which is the posture of prayer. And it's it's in this place, which on the screen is like a Venn diagram, it's in this place where these three qualities intersect which is perseverance, humility, and trust. This is where we achieve a genuine and a life-changing connection with God himself. This is where God's kingdom comes on earth. And so this Lent, as you read your Bible, as you fast from one thing or the other, start praying, okay? Not just with your, 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 your honeydew list for God. But start praying for relationship with times of silence, with times of listening, with times of presence, with times of talking. Walk through your day in the presence of God, reminding yourself simply that he's there and that he he loves you. Pray and don't quit. Pray with perseverance, with humility and with trust. Pray like a widow. Pray like a tax collector. Pray like a child. You know, how would your life look different if you practiced the spiritual habit of perseverance? Do you think that maybe you might see God breaking through in ways that you could never expect? And how would your life look different if you practiced the spiritual habit of humility, not coming to God in pride or insisting on your way, but in the humility of a sinner saved by grace? And how would your life look different if you practiced the spiritual habit of trust coming coming as a child to your heavenly brother Jesus and your heavenly dad? If you entered this space with the quiet confidence that you are loved, that you are special, that you are cherished, that you are welcomed, and that you are accepted. You know... in a few weeks' time during Lent, we're actually going to take a week to practice prayer that is persevering, humble, and full of trust. We will be channeling the widow and the tax collector and the child. Because towards the end of Lent, starting on Monday the 6th of April, we are, we are going to have a week where we as a church are fasting altogether. together. Now, for me, I'm planning to fast food for that week. Not eat fast food, but I'm planning to fast food. Not to earn brownie points with God, but to enjoy the freedom of focusing on him. And I realize that we aren't all able to do that for work reasons or for health reasons, but that's my plan. And this week will be a, a, a week where we get to knock on the door of heaven and just ask God to move into our church, move into our community in power so that he can do what only can he can do now after sharing this amusing story about the widow and the judge encouraging us to pray and not give up jesus suddenly turns super serious and he asks this question of all of the disciples but i believe he also asks it of us he he says this however when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And, friend, and as, as we've learned this morning, faith is made up of perseverance and humility and trust. It's confidence and assurance. Faith is praying and not giving up. And it's rooted in the knowledge that God is a good God And so when Jesus returns and with his all-seeing eye scans your life, will he find signs of life? Will he find faith? When he looks at Cornerstone, will he find faith? When he looks at the world, at North America, at Canada, will this church, this group of people, register hot on his radar scanner of faith? Or will we be lukewarm, barely even registering? Jesus is actively looking for signs of faith. Will he find faith or will he find excuses? Will he find signs of vibrant life in the midst of the hardships of life or will he find his people barely conscious? Will he find faith, that confidence in what we hope for and that assurance about what we do not see? Will he find the spirit of the persevering widow Or will he find the spirit of the unjust judge, angry that his comfortable sleep has been interrupted? Will he find the humility of the tax collector or the self-righteousness of the Pharisee? Will he find the confidence of a child on his knee or the spirit of those who say that Jesus is only for the chosen few? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth Jesus is clear in this verse, friends, that when he returns, he's looking for faith. He will be searching it out. It will be the one thing on his mind. And faith looks like praying and not giving up. Faith looks like the perseverance of the widow, the humility of the tax collector, and the trust of the child. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So pray and don't give up.